Hello, everybody. This is Jeff Morton, and I am joined by my co-host, Dina Dye. Say hello. <laughs> Say hi, Dr. Dina Dye. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. Hope, hope you're doing what? I never know how to do that, you know. I remember when we first started showing, doing this, you said, oh, call me doctor. So then I'd call you doctor, and I'd, try to, I'd fall all over myself trying to pull it back. Uh, my co-host, Dina, Dina, Diane, however you want to call her, is with me today. And uh, we're, I'm actually not in my normal place. I'm at my office. And so if anything happens here... It'll be because I'm not alone anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, anything can happen at any time. It's okay. We will manage. <laughs> okay, well, um, you know, this is part two of a show we did last week, which we, we titled Heaven and Temple, mm -hmm. the Heaven and Temple concept. So I kind of want to jump right into the show. We've got 30 minutes. Dina, when we were talking about this, we were talking uh, – well, we covered a lot of territory last week, but for the person, and by the way, we want to thank all of the new listeners. We have quite a few of you that have come on board here over the last week, uh, and we have several people that are following us now on the program, so we really, that's just kind of cool. Uh, but we were talking about the heaven temple concept, mm -hmm. okay? And I'll have you know that after returning from Las Vegas, my book for Victor Hurwitz was here. Okay. And I started reading through it. Dina, I don't know how, when you start learning about the temple, that you can keep this in a religious vernacular only. It just doesn't work when you start doing the research and start looking at what these hundreds of people have gone before studying this material. Uh, they all say the same thing. Yeah. They all say the same thing, and I'll let you... You're going to have to jump in and do the background because I might head swirling. Well, I think um, it is problematic. We do tend to view the scriptures from a modern mindset, and the modern mindset is quote-unquote religious and moral, which I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't have a moral component, but... And we've really we put it into a political, moral, uh, religious environment, and then we're we have so hung on to that it's difficult for us to say, well, wait a minute, maybe there's something more here. The ancient world is so foreign to us. Uh, it's an ancient Near East world. We're a Western, modern Western culture. I mean, uh, certainly some of the ancient Near East world spilled into Rome, the Roman world, and if people took the time, they would start to understand it. But it is as foreign and uh, as anything could be. Uh, it's interesting, though, when I speak with people who are a uh, Asian, the Asian world understands this intrinsically. It's not difficult for them because that's the world in which they function in. But we are a rational scientific world and who have completely divorced ourselves from, uh, I don't even like using the word, word spiritual, but you know what I'm saying. I do. And so uh, now our efforts based on a lot, I mean, wonderful scholars out there, brilliant, and I mean, to my mind, all I'm doing is taking their material and filtering through it and becoming a bridge between the scholarship world and, and the folks. My goal is to simply understand what the text is saying. 
And of course, we've talked about from there we can go and make the application. But the ancient writers wrote uh, from a historical, geographical, archaeological context. However, they inserted into that their interpretation of events in order to tell people what God was doing in the world. That is the, the purpose of their interpretive view is to show how God moves and works in the world. But it's very difficult. Let ahead. me interject because when you say that and having read a lot of this material now, it's, it's one thing to try to get that point across, but then it's another thing to try to explain how they did it because it isn't like what we're familiar with. Right. So it's kind of a catch-22 for the person just getting their toe wet on this. Yeah, well, and that's why, for me, I mean, I'm not really sure why. I can just look at the text in the Bible and go, oh, yeah, that's, that's what's being said here. And I'm going to show you some examples. You know, we know that the Bible has many different lenses and filters, and you can see the Bible through those filters and begin to interpret, which is exactly what the ancient writers were trying to do. So it's important for uh, modern uh, religious quote people to understand things like the festivals and the, how the city of Jerusalem functioned, how, where the temple was located. The backdrop is very important if we're going to have any hope of understanding what the interpretive view is. You cannot go to the interpretation without having understood the historical and geographical context. So, for you know, we see that in the story of Noah's Ark. Uh, yeah, we have a region mentioned, we have a boat mentioned, we have a size mentioned. You know, we've got information. So now we say, well, what, what was the writer trying to communicate? So in that particular story, the, the focus was not on the flood, which is where our focus tends to be. We're going to look at the flood, you know, how long it lasts, how deep was it, you know. What, what's being communicated there is, is not the flood, but the purpose of the ark, the place of the presence of God. Again, it goes back to what was God doing in the world. And so, you know, it's about the deliverance of a man and his family over, okay, everybody's dead and wiped out. So that's kind of, you know, that is our um, filter then for, for viewing the ancient world. And so we've been talking about heaven, and so the, I've mentioned before the ancient writers did not separate heaven from earth. Heaven and earth were meant to be joined together, locked together, and the temple was the place where the two became one. So we've separated it. We've got earth down here and all this stuff going on, and we've got heaven up there. And because of that, we, we view heaven as sort of this otherworldly place in which, you know, different beings are floating around doing stuff. And, and that's really not what's being communicated. So heaven in the ancient world, as we talked about last week, was the domain of the king. And the king, every king in the ancient world, aspired to be as the gods. And, of course, the gods' domain was heaven as well. So the temple was, the physical temple became the visual expression of the king seated on the throne ruling over the earth. So it's where the government was managed and run, the operations base. So I'm trying to get people out of this sort of 
faraway, distant world heaven and see what you know was actually what it actually meant to the people back then. Well, you might, in consideration of that fact, you know, in the ancient world prior to the God of Israel, everybody was a slave to the gods. Right. So it's quite. It's really not remarkable that when we see an eclipse or we see a tsunami wipe out Japan or whatever, we automatically, in our culture today, we have a remnant of thinking that, okay, the God is upset, and that's why this is happening. Well, that's the pagan reality of the world that we're talking about brought forward, but we don't recognize the kind of God that Israel had it was just the opposite of that. Right. So that's an example where we're using a lot of the, um, you know, all the, the hundreds of thousands of gods that we were servants to, slaves to, where we didn't want to upset them because then they would cause a, an eclipse or a hurricane or a storm or whatever. Right. Not to say that our God did not cause famine when it came to Israel. But, but we, we have to put it in context that our understanding is not so different than the gods of the ancient world that the people were enslaved to. That's not who our God is. Amen. So, yes. What he's doing in the world is what matters most, how he is delivering and setting his people free like he did with Noah. Right. And really, in essence, with Adam and, and all the way through the scriptures. Right. How does he move... And how does he set his people free? Because the gods enslave. So in order to understand the, the world of heaven, if you will, we, we have to go back to Genesis 1. What a surprise. And I would encourage people to go and read uh, you know, 114 because it talks about, you know, we have God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars as well. So the, the sun, the moon, and the stars have a symbolic meaning in relationship to heaven. So the, the Hebrew word for the, the greater light and lesser light and stars ruling is the word, it comes from the root word mashal. Mashal means to have dominion, jurisdiction. It's the place, it, it represented princes and, and chief rulers, etc. So mashal is the same root as the word for the Proverbs, which is mishle, which means dominions, if you will. So in the, to the ancient world, the sun was the god or the king who was the representative of the god. The moon was the queen or in the, in the pagan cultures, the goddess, if you will. And the stars, you know, represented those who have been assigned rulership. So the way, how we can take that farther is when we look at the story, uh, well, when Joseph had his two dreams, do you remember that? Yep, I and do. So the sun and the moon, and, and now we have the 11 stars bowing down to the 12th star, Joseph. And, of course, it sounded like his father rebuked him, you know, what is this dream that you're having? Is it really the case that you, your mother and I and your brothers are going to bow down to the ground? And I, I don't know, we don't know how that was said. Like we think like, really? And Jacob was rebuking him, but Jacob may have well been stating a fact, okay, that your mother, who was Rachel, represented the moon, and the father, Jacob, represented the stars, I mean the sun, 
Right. And the, and the tribes, the leaders of the tribes, the sons of Jacob represented the stars, and that's important. Okay? And, you know, the, the brothers respond, you know, are we going to, you know, are you going to reign over us? And there's the Hebrew word mashal again. Are you going to have dominion over us? There's that word mashal again. So that is the cultural context for the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, stuff that happens in the heavenly realm is related to the world of the kings. Let me just read from Isaiah 14. This is talking about the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. It says, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, which is the king's domain. Oh, bright star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to earth. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, because every king aspired to ascend to heaven and be as the gods. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. So those are the, the representatives of God, the rulers, which in the case of Israel is going taking us back to the tribes. Mm -hmm. So every king aspired to ascend to heaven because that's the place where he would have authority and dominion. So when we're talking, when we go to Matthew 24 and all those places, and it talks about, um, you know, the sun turning uh, darkened and the moon not giving its light. We're, we're taking it back to the heavenly realm of the kings. Now, there was a rumor in the first century that when Caesar died, the sun would be darkened. Because Caesar, of course, represented the sun as well. You can look at all of the different Egyptian pharaohs. They represented the sun, you know, God, all that kind of stuff. Right. So stars falling out of the heavens was ancient Near East kings losing power. Right. That's all that is. And of course, we're a lot, and it isn't, you know, obviously stars, we have shooting stars, and we have natural things that happen in the heavens, the eclipses and things. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about how the ancient world viewed the concept of heaven. And so... Uh, the stars falling out and the, and the power of the heavens shaken is some sort of upheaval of the status quo of the current, uh, you know, king who's serving an operation. It's the upending of the powers and the powerful and the elites and the rulers. It is into this that Yeshua uh, comes, where, where I, what I would say is that, you know, power in the ancient world resided in heaven, but what Yeshua is saying is that power has been transferred to earth where he is the king. And we, I talked about this last week, so I'm not going to go over that again. The fact that this king is on earth moving through his people, that he is... And so what he is saying in Matthew 24 is what's coming, what's going to happen here in short order after his death is that the the temple is going to be uh, destroyed in the city of Jerusalem, etc., etc. With his death, what he was going to communicate is that the empire of Rome is being overthrown, and as well as the temple leadership, who were at that time quite corrupt. So all of this language is really in Matthew 24, and I think we've done ourselves a huge disservice by making it mean something in the future. To be perfectly honest, um, stuff, what we read in the, in the prophets wasn't about foretelling the future. 
It was a statement of current events. They were, the prophets were making a statement about the reality on the ground at the time, in the culture, etc., and not about what was going to happen in the Middle East in 2020. So um, this, is, uh, this is a hard thing for us to get our hands around because we have been so programmed to view everything through that lens. Now, I'm not saying stuff won't happen. I don't have a clue. I do know that all through the history of mankind, rulers and princes and chief priests and, and you know, whatever format you're in, have always run the show. You know, we, we deal now with the globalists. They are running the show, and their goal is to enslave the masses and all the people of the earth. So there isn't really a whole lot different between that and King Nebuchadnezzar. They all have the same uh, desire at heart. See, but we are king with us, who dwells with us. That's really the footprint. If, if we, that's the footprint of mankind and the kingdoms that are out of control in chaos. Because it doesn't matter what point in history you go to, wherever you have the rulership that is not submitted to the covenant structure of the kingdom of God, you have chaos. And chaos means that some guy or some woman has elevated themselves into the position of God and now is enslaving all of her subjects or his subjects. That is time and memorial of how it's done when we elevate ourselves to the place of the gods because we're basically emulating the way that the ancient world thought of the gods. So if we could be one of them, then we can have the masses enslaved under us which is, you mentioned, I won't go there, but we see that happening across the spectrum in our country today and countries around the world. But I wanted to go back to a point you made about heaven. The ancient world, you've said this a couple of times, and I know this now that I've studied this, they didn't see heaven as some faraway place that we couldn't see. They saw heaven as in the tops of the mountains, in the canopy over the earth, in the night sky, when you stop and think about Moses on top of the mountain or Zeus up on top of the mountain or Apollo on top of the mountain, all of those are soliloquies of this world and how they saw it. They didn't see, you didn't have to go to the far side of the galaxy to be in the presence of your God. In the case of Jerusalem, you simply had to go into the temple, up to the temple, and there you would be in the place and presence of the God of, of Israel. Well, that was true for all of those cultures. Every one of those cultures would have viewed it that way. And that's what Dina was alluding to last week in the program. The difference is our God left the temple and milled around with the people, and his whole purpose was to connect all of those realms into one, which is where we are headed. All of us are headed in that place. Go ahead, Dina. Well, and so, you know, we have a lot of language in the scriptures about God, Adonai, and Adonai Tzvaot, the host, you know, God and the host, his heavenly host. Uh, we translate it, um, often it's translated host, should be armies, and we could say armies of heaven. So all the kings, if you will, had their armies, <laughs> okay? So now when we're talking about warfare in the heavens, we're just we're talking about a conflict between the kingdom of our God and the rulers of the world, go, you know, doing battle. Um, 
In fact, I read somewhere where the word Sva'ot, which we translate hosts, hosts or armies, in the Septuagint was actually the same word for cosmos, interestingly enough, which is, you know, the entirety of the ordered universe place from where, uh, where God created and where he sits to rule and reign. So we have a lot of language in scripture about a divine conflict. Uh, classic, of course, is Daniel. The book of Daniel is filled with it. But let me just read a couple of things here. So this says that Adonai will punish the hosts of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on the earth. See, that's Hebrew parallelism that's saying exactly the same thing. Right. Punishing the host of heaven is punishing the kings of the earth on the earth. Because they're, you know, they're, although we got a divide between them, they are, they are mirror images of one another. And it talked about the moon being abashed and the sun being ashamed, or Adonai will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So you see, these kings will be, uh, there'll be great reproach come upon these kings when, when our God is ruling and reigning. I mean, there's so much of this language in the scriptures. It, uh, I just want people to start, you know, looking at it from a different perspective and stop putting everything in some... I mean, I don't know how the world outside of time looks. And, I, you know, I know supernatural things happen. I am not discounting that in any way. However... <laughs> Well, there is an imagery being communicated here about the kings of the world, and this is our battle. We are still battling the kings of this world who want to enslave us. And like I mentioned, you know, our in our generation time, we are we are dealing with the globalists. They are our enemy. <laughs> you know, you um, you mentioned something, and I want I kind of want to say this here because <clears throat> in the in the midst of goodness, there's always bad. There's always some lunatic trying to do something. When we talk about America, and this is a subject I'm very passionate about, America was the, one of the first nations in the world that wasn't trying to enslave the nations of the world. It was the first nation in the world that didn't conquer nations and take their land. But within the nations, you had those who wanted to enslave. You have that happening now within the nation. So rather than make this a racial thing or an ethnic thing, it's an evil thing. It is a place out of chaos. So here you've got this gigantic nation born, and now you've got within this nation powers and principalities, if I can use that term to, to maybe connect you to it, that want to do the very thing Dean is talking about. So it was the people of this nation that rose up against that. That's the part that's a beautiful thing about the United States of America. We were the first nation where the people could rise up above their king and depose these lunatics. And, what, and when you understand this ancient language of how the world worked in those days, then you begin to understand that that battle is going on within the United States of America today because there's people in this world who want to enslave the masses and there's people in this world who want freedom and this has been this is the history of all histories really go ahead Dina yeah well and this gets to I mean this is going to be a little touchy here but this gets to the whole concept of demons because they 
So in the first century, I'm sorry, but you could not go around and say stuff about Caesar and his cronies, or you're, you know, you, you, you don't have a head, or you're crucified on a tree. So they had code language. You remember the guys in the tombs, you know, what, what was the name of the demon? Legion, because it was referring to the Roman army. Right. So in the ancient world, you had heaven, earth, and sea, and the sea represented the underworld. And I'm just going to—we don't have much time, but I'm just going to show you how this. We have an event in in uh, chapter eight of the these two guys, you know, filled with these demons screaming. But uh, and that's the story. But what is the backstory? What is the interpretation of it? And it, so it talks about Yeshua going to the other side. Like when you see him going to the other side across the water, that's, that's like crossing the river to, you know, the river Styx to the underworld. So where is he going? He's going to the Gadarene, to the grave, the tomb. This represents the underworld. And so there's these two guys there, and they're very violent, and they scream, what's between you and us, Ben Elohim? Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? So what happened? And of course, the use of Ben Elohim, Son of God, because Yeshua is Son of God on the earth, it's the counter to Caesar, this whole, you know, the whole event. And so now we see there was a large herd of pigs some feeding some distance from them, and the demons kept begging him, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he told them, go, so they came out and went into the pigs. Now here's where it's very interesting. And the whole herd rushed down the cliff into the sea and drowned. Who do we think that he's talking about? He's talking about Pharaoh. This, these guys are going to get delivered like the Exodus, and Pharaoh and his demon cliff pig thing are going to end up drowning in the sea, the place of the underworld, just like we had the Israelites crossing the sea in the book of Exodus. So you see what I'm saying? There's so much of this in the New Testament. We're not looking at it. Granted, we have a, a plain meaning, but we're not looking at it in the sort of code language of the day. Well, we turned it into the Exodus story, which is... <laughs> yeah. We turned it into a Roman Catholic exorcism instead of the retelling of Pharaoh chasing the, the children exactly. of Israel. A retelling of the, of the Exodus because now these two guys are going to be free, just like the guy in the Gadarenes from the church. We started the program out by telling you guys that it's the, the person that we're reading this information from is interpreting. So this is their interpretation. And what's their backdrop? The history of Israel. That's their backdrop. So that's what they're using when they talk about the hell that they're going through with the Roman army occupying the land. This is what the Messiah is doing. He's making preparations. I love how you said it in one show or two ago, uh, a while ago, Dina, where you said the Messiah is basically reclaiming the land and he's getting ready to take it from the nations. And this is literally what Messiah is doing as he begins to, we call it a ministry, but it's really, if you, here's a clue. The moment he came up out of the water when John baptized him, he went on attack mode, and he started attacking all of the authority around Jerusalem.
that because was blessing the people. Go ahead. the authority with Thank the immersion. You. When he rose up out of the water and the dove came, that was the authority given to him by God to be the Messiah. Right. I mean, the Messiah thing is a process, but at that point, he had the authority, and it's from that point he could go into the temple and declare, you know, this is my father's house, and you guys have turned it into a den of robbers. Uh, he had the authority on earth to do that. When we say father's house, we're not talking about a biological situation. We're talking about kingdom language that would have been very familiar with everyone hearing this conversation. This is the suzerain's house. You have no authority, none whatsoever to be doing what you're doing in this place. This is the place of his presence. This is why I'm here. I'm reclaiming the land in order for the place of my presence to be restored. See, I, you know, when we, when we take it out of the religious mindset and the supernatural, and dare I say, let me duck, prophetic stuff that the Western world has heaped upon us, and I was there. I was yes. there. Oh, me too. Me too. Until I started learning about the temple and learning about ancient Near East mindset and cultural, when I started realizing how they saw the world, none of them would have been on YouTube talking about, well, today's prophet. Today's prophet said, come next weekend, uh, God told him or her that there's going to be a tsunami in uh, 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 who knows. But the, the point being is that virtually everything you're talking about is the way they spoke from a kingdom perspective, not a church perspective, not a religious perspective, but the kingdom language of the Bible and how the writer's interpreting it. We've turned it into something that's just confusing. It's just confusing, Dina. Yeah. I'll give you the oh, last no question. Well, and, and like we, I said, we don't want to discount the miracles of Yeshua because Absolutely as Messiah, not. you know, he was, to, he was rescuing them and delivering them from the clutches of Rome at the time and, and was showing them their deliverance. Not only were they, they were seeing it and they were experiencing deliverance and freedom by the healing and all the, you know, all the things that he was able to do, which proved he was the Messiah King because he set them free in their own lives in the same way that the Israel was set free from Pharaoh when they crossed over the sea. I would just venture to say it's probably a good idea to begin reading the New Testament from the perspective of the Exodus because it is chock full with imagery about Pharaoh and the and the deliverance. The book of Acts is filled with it. And so um, this is the reason that Yeshua died and rose at Passover because that was the plan. And, be, and so the, the New Testament is filled with Passover, Exodus language. Exodus language. Sounds like we need to end the show because your signal's getting a little weak there. But uh, anyway, folks, yeah. this is part two of heaven. The heaven, uh, what, is it? what is the heaven and uh, temple concept? We, we're going to keep coming at you with this stuff every week. We're trying to do the show every week. It's kind of difficult because we have different schedules, but we're working on it. So uh, we'll be posting the program for you. We thank you for joining us. And please, send us your questions. Dina, what's your email address? 
Dr. Diana Dye at gmail.com. D R D I N A Gmail. And mine is uncoloringrace at gmail.com. Of course, you can visit her website. Dina, what's your website? Foundationsintora.com. <laughs> One more time. <laughs> Foundationsintora.com. You can just Google Dina Dye and I'll get you to my. And you can just jeffsmorton.com piece of cake. Uh, so we'll talk to you guys next time. We thank you for listening. God bless and shalom.